Welcome to Adaptation, the podcast that dives into all things self-optimization and self-discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Katazi, and today we have a part two with the incredibly smart Ivor Cummins on all things COVID-19 and the response that we see both in the UK and globally. Episode 132, which was the first part of this conversation, was a huge success. It was a penny-dropping moment for many, many people. So I got Ivor back on the show so we could let off some steam, understand what has happened over the last three months, try and wrap our heads around some of the crazy that we're seeing, try and put some motives and understand the why behind the activity, and then end up with some hope. It was a great, great episode. It was therapeutic for me. I think it's going to be enjoyable for you. It is a long one, but it's a necessary conversation. We're all talking about COVID-19. We're all starting to scratch our heads and going, hey, this is illogical. This ain't all making sense. And why? Why is the whole world acting in unison? What could be driving that behavior? And is the public health's interest at the center of these activities? Big questions, important questions, and questions you need to have an answer to. And I hope between Ivor Cummins and myself, we do a good job of at least giving you some food for thought, some things to think about, some things to talk about with your friends and your colleagues and your loved ones, because it's really, really important we get our head around this. And if we do not like what we're seeing, we need to stand up and be counted. We need to start sharing information that we'd otherwise feel vulnerable sharing and letting people know the truth. Letting people get clued up on the complexity of what is this pandemic and the response. But by getting informed, we can then act. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this episode. Let's get straight into it. And if you enjoy it, please share widely. Ivan, my friend, welcome back to the show. Hey, Steve. Great to be back. Lots been going on. Oh, I know. Tell me about it. So we are, what, 20th of August. The show we last done was the, was the end of May. So it's been a couple of months from our last discussion. And I wanted to give you, and quite frankly, me, Ivan, an opportunity to have an unfiltered chat and let off some steam. Because <laughs> the mania, the COVID mania, uh, for some of us, has been driving us a little bit insane. And I think it's um, maybe a good opportunity for us both to kind of lift ourselves up from the rabbit hole collectively and kind of make some sense of what is going on, what we now understand, because, you know, the science has developed, the data has developed since the end of May, and see if we can bring our audience along that journey too so we can uh, encourage people to see the facts and kind of work through, you know, the fear and scaremongering that we absolutely we still, surprisingly, getting hit over the head with. Does that sound like a good idea for you, man? Yeah, that's great, Steve. And in fact, relative to the impact of this thing in Europe, uh, the scaremongering has actually increased greatly uh, if you account for the fact that the impacts have fallen greatly. So in ways, it's got worse. Yeah, yeah tell me about it. I am, I'm actually incredibly surprised. I would have assumed, as you saw, the sloping at, down of this curve that things would start to normalize and uh, the hysteria would weaken. But I think around about mid-June, I started to realize that that wasn't going to happen. And I anticipated an ever-increasing 
hitting over the head, for want of a better word, of things that you would have assumed were not relevant and not needed, but they just kept coming through thick and fast. And that they haven't up, they haven't disappointed pretty much every other day. There's something that just irks me a little bit. So let's get into that. Let's um let's just first actually let me, let me say that that episode that we done late May was fantastic. There are so many people that reached out to me, Ivor, and said, one, that Ivor guy, he's great. I've got to go follow him. <laughs> and secondly, it would seem to be that penny dropping moment, that Kaiser Soze moment for a lot of people where they thought, you know what? This doesn't make sense. And these guys, they do make sense. And hang on a minute, maybe I need to start being a bit more critical in my evaluation of the situation. So I wanted to sincerely thank you for that chat. That proved to be so useful to so many people. Hey, no problem, Steve. No, I was pretty passionate and very engaged at that time, obviously. And uh, anyone who wants to talk about it, I did. But we had a particularly great chat. But it's, you know, there's a thing, discordance. So in any technical problem that's complex, and, and I've led many, many over the decades, the thing is that usually you're looking for concordance. So everything you predict based on the science, the modeling, the data, the statistics, everything, you expect to see things concordant with what you've uh, projected. And that was all happening back in April, May, even the psychological societal side. So how our societies and so-called experts were reacting was concordant. It was rising. There were pictures of, you know, hospitals overflowing. They did lockdowns. Didn't make scientific sense, but it was concordant. It made sense that they panicked. Everything was concordant. But, but as you say, in late April, May, discordance started. And that's what really got me worried. And in June, then in July, it went off the map. So now we had a classic viral cycle had gone through its motions. Sadly, a lot of people passed away, mostly aged and comorbid. Uh, but you could understand all the reactions, you know, precautionary principle, you know, fear, concern from politicians. It could blow back in their face if they were perceived as having exposed the population to excess death, everything. But then it went discordant where the deaths collapsed, the hospitals began to empty. It was all concordant with the science. That's exactly what we predicted to happen. As with any flu-like illness, there's a natural Gompertz curve in Northern Europe particularly. But then they started behaving completely discordantly and they began to increase hysteria in ways. I mean, the perfect example is I had very dark days in July when I knew something was seriously wrong. So in the summer, after a seasonal epidemic had passed and we were ready to open up, they brought in mandatory masking laws. Uh, and that was the day where I realized something was profoundly wrong, not with the virus, but with the reaction to it. Yeah, man. I, feel, I felt exactly the same concern, slight apathy. I mean, I'm not someone that lives in despair, but I have been struggling with this um, train wreck in terms of the response and trying to get my head around the why behind our response because the data, the, empir the empirical data, the science, everything we know seem to go in a different direction. And that really, you know, the, the, the term that resonates most with me at the moment is cognitive dissonance. It's, there's outright insanity. You know, it's the only way I can I'm, I can describe it right now. It's mind-blowing. You know, people are freaking out about cases when there are no deaths. You know, people are freaking out 
about this situation when there's no action in hospitals and ICUs are, you know, barely being leveraged. Um, no one's experiencing any issues, either personally or people they know or people they know they know anymore. Like, you know, all that's gone. You know, there's tons of lax behavior, whether it's people not wearing masks deliberately or people getting too close, um, not intentionally, but they just get comfortable and they realize they're right next to each other. There's no social distance in many parts of the country, not not through necessarily being rebellious, just it's people are just getting on with their lives. And yet there's no rises in anything. The only thing that we're seeing a slight blip in is the cases. So I'm struggling with this and I'm struggling with the fact that people continue to declare Sweden as an absolute disaster. I look at this and I say, this is classical cognitive dissonance. When people want to believe something so strongly that it doesn't matter what, how much evidence you throw in front of them, they will just dismiss it, ignore it, or call you a heretic. Help me get my head get my head around that because it's really I'm really struggling that there are smart people, um, and maybe this is the last point. I will let you speak. There are really smart people that clearly think differently to you and I and many others. The likes of Sam Harris, neuroscientist and podcast host, whether it's Dr. Peter Atia, who's also a podcast host and and a doctor. Uh, or Dr. Sid Mukherjee, who's an oncologist, author, New Yorker journalist, or the professor Dennis Carroll, which was, you know, the, the guy who led the pandemic documentary. There are really, really, really smart people, and in some cases, smart people that know a hell of a lot about this kind of thing, that say the complete opposite to you and I. And I think that's why there's so much struggle going on right now. So help try and break this down for me a little bit, Ivor, right? There's cognitive dissonance at the public level, at the government level, and then these insanely smart people that don't see it the way you and I see it. Yeah, Steve, how do you unpack this? Um, the word psychosis keeps coming into my head, and I know that's a strong word, <laughs> but you know what? What I've witnessed over the last couple of months, cognitive dissonance for sure, um, but my mind keeps moving towards the word psychosis because it's that irrational to me. Uh, Professor Michael Levitt, Nobel Prize winner, uh, obviously ultra-intelligent mathematical modeler of complex chemical reactions, that's what he won the prize for, perfectly suited to analyze the actual data for this viral cycle and where it was heading. And in February, I think actually late January, he noted, he was in China at the time, that the Chinese epidemic had never been exponential. It was exponential only for a couple of days. Then it went to power law. Then it went kind of linear. And then it nosed over independent of lockdowns. It mathematically behaved like that. And he also noticed that this is how influenza epidemics generally uh, behave. So he began to analyze and analyze. And he is a machine. As you know, I interviewed him. And he said, yeah, this is true. And then when it came to Italy even though that was quite shocking because they kind of got a couple of seasons in one. They had a few soft seasons and now they got really hit in a very tight time frame. Um, so it, it was actually appeared quite, quite nasty and it was, it was terrible. Uh, but he noticed the Italian data, whatever about the Chinese, you could question their data. As he said, they didn't have a time machine and the Italian data behaved mathematically the exact same way. So he knew whether they were fudging or not was irrelevant. 
So he knew from the Italian data that it was nosing over and rapidly non-exponential. It was actually exponentially slowing from the start, believe it or not. Right. So he uh, wrote to Imperial College and he said, guys, I've done the analysis and this is kind of mathematically inevitable. This is a fact. This is not modeling. Uh, you're out by a factor of 10 to 12 in your modeling. Now, interestingly, that's exactly how much they turned out to be out by. Uh, around 10 to 17, actually, if you look at different countries. But they refused to listen. And they had an exponential model, an old computer homemade bit of code that Ferguson had made 15 years ago, based on flu, but actually incorrect even by flu standards, because influenza is showing the exact same behavior as this corona. So the model was even wrong for flu. So the reality is that it followed the exact cycle that Michael Levitt said, with some seasonal exceptions. Michael, in fairness, had not at the time fully grasped all the seasonal variants and regional variants, which changes the curve and when it occurs in the year. We've seen that all come to pass now. But for Northern Europe and Northern America, he was bang on. And... Um, we know that he was correct now. And around April, that was all coming true, what he predicted. Sweden as well is a prime example of following good science, good mathematics, genuine technical, um, you know, appropriateness. They dealt with it as scientists and also as people. They dealt with it as uh, humans also because they knew that, look, it's not all about Corona. It's also about the young. Uh, it's about society. It's about our medical system. It's about the health of the nation. So we're going to take a balanced science-based approach. They obviously were thinking like Levitt was, and they were correct. So all of what I've said and, and much, much more all came true. But then the world could not let go of the mentality that they had built in March, April. And this is a known human problem that you, when you have asserted something and placed a huge stock in it and taken huge measures based on a belief that you think is scientific and it turns out to be wrong, then it switches totally into the ideology or belief-based psychology. So the whole structures we have, the experts had all placed all of their bets on the table on the imperial modeling and on the lockdown medieval level science. And when it turned out to be all wrong, they were now deeply in an ideology that they had to stick to. And I'm not talking just, you know, at the surface level of consciousness, like all of these people realized, damn, we were wrong, but we got to keep saying we were right. It's not conscious, it's subconscious. They subconsciously reject the data that says they were wrong. It's beneath their conscience. And they kind of at a conscious level actually believe their own BS. And that's cognitive dissonance, where you've ruled out facing reality at a level that you're not even really aware that you've done it. And that's where they are. Now, how they are all managing to do this is another question. Is it a kind of psychosis, cognitive dissonance, or is there something more unpalatable 
behind it. And again, we don't get into conspiracy theories here, but as a root cause specialist, I have to also look at, well, what really drove this besides mass uh, delusion since May, April or April, May, June? And we have to acknowledge that there are very large, hugely influential organizations that without any question are fueling the current approach. Um, and that's just a reality. So we won't get into names, but I mean, obviously WHO, a huge organization, and it's on the record. Everyone knows they've repeatedly come out with frightening edicts, um, even up to last week, last week or a few days ago, they are coming out with top people in that organization and saying, it's spreading in the young now, but it's going to kill the old, basically. So there's no question that beyond all our experts who got it wrong and now are cognitively dissonanced, we have got the top uh, advisory bodies in the world from day one have been purposefully, consistently and powerfully driving what we're talking about. And you can ask why, maybe it's just what they do. Mm. Now, I, I, wanna, I do want to double click into that. I will, we'll get there in a moment. Um, before we do, I just want to pause and make sure we've given given enough airspace to this this idea that smart people that you know I, I respect you know Sam Harris I respect Sam Harris I respect Peter Atiyah for example um, and there's others that I listen to and I, I, I try and have a balanced uh, consumption of information I do have my biases for sure uh, but I do try and listen to alternative perspectives. And I've heard the likes of, say, Sid Mukherjee um, talk about, you know, the American response was a complete blunder from the get-go. And his, really, his narrative is, we have an issue because we as humans and the leadership of, of our people in society didn't do enough or done it too late or didn't take it seriously or was not, were not draconian enough to influence the people early on. Uh, and, you know, you'll hear these people that also say, hey, the science ain't really there for masks, but we should do it anyway. Because, you know, there is no science, but there kind of is science. There, there is science that makes some effort, but there isn't science that proves it. I'm like, oh, is there or isn't there? Like, come on, you're not making any sense. But you hear these people say, like, categorically, the lack of testing, you know, the, the, the blunders with getting your testing ready, you know, we should have been doing loads more testing, we should have locked down super early, we should have restricted people coming in from Europe. This is the kind of North American slant on this. And part of me agrees that, you know, if we looking at this from a purist perspective of movement, and understanding the prevalence, hey, we could have done things better. But the question I keep coming back to, Ivan, and it's a question I want to pose to you is, these people are fully suggesting it's, um, it's ignorance naivety or or just a lack of action that has led us to the place we're in right now. And if we acted more, we would have had better outcomes. And the reason why North America and the likes of England are so bad on the leaderboard is because of our flip-flopping and lack of decisive control of this situation. What do you think about that? Because that's what these smart people are saying. It's, this is a human-created problem in terms of the amount of deaths that we've seen. Yeah, well, I'd say that Intelligence and knowledge is fantastic. And you always want to have very intelligent, very knowledgeable people 
uh, in in the game if you're trying to decide things. But you got to be really careful with them too, uh, because uh, they are equally as prone to cognitive bias and the problems we described. And it may seem surprising for the layperson. You say, well, if you're more intelligent, you're less likely. Uh, that's not true. Uh, you're just as likely, in some aspects more likely, because you've got deeply entrenched beliefs about your own capability, your own knowledge. And once you've formed an idea, you can actually hold to it very powerfully. So I think that there's that going on. Uh, on the masks, we'll just kick it out of the way because you mentioned it. Uh, I'm a great uh, believer in empirical science, which is the science you can see with your own eyes. Uh, it's a long tradition. It goes back to the start of our, as a species, our dabbling in science. And if you look at masks, with no question whatsoever, we have got eight to 10 countries now that brought in mandatory mask orders on a knife edge at all different time points in the curve, the R curve. And without any question, there is zero signal where the masks introduced had any effect on the R curve of spread. So now we Such got, as Brazil and Argentina, right? Well, some countries like, I think it's Peru or Argentina, I can't remember exactly, did massive lockdown from March and mask orders before the deaths really rose. And they've remorselessly risen through the roof since. And then we have countries with no masks and very weak lockdowns who are pretty much out of this and finished. So I can't really articulate the amount of black swans around masks that if you add them all together, it eviscerates the mask argument. Now, if you add to that, we have 30 years of published science that all uh, pretty much comes together in concordance that masks are no real use for viral spread. They might be useful for some other things like spittle and, and hair and skin flakes falling into a wound when the surgeon's working. Though even that, there are studies saying it doesn't even help there. But if you put together all the science on masks, you get a resounding answer. If that's what you're depending on, guys, forget about it, right? Forget about it. And then we have a flurry of very weak science in June 2020 that suddenly a bunch of papers came out claiming they might be quite good. And I don't go for that. I put decades of science and all the empirical observational science ahead of a flurry of papers in June 2020. Right? Now, I won't get into motivations and other stuff. That's the reality of masks. So if we go back to the experts, they seem to be overlooking, ignoring, or just pushing aside logic and evidence. So we've got now, I sent out a message there with a Dropbox folder with around seven publications now in the last two months showing mathematically that lockdowns have near, nearly no effect and that the country mortality rates that were experienced, like you could say America, you know, did a terrible job. Everyone did a terrible job, but but did it make a difference? And the two big things that I see that are dictating the country impacts are um, the severity of prior flu seasons the last couple of years. There's an almost perfect match between soft seasons or less than expected mortality and then getting it hit hard this time 
which makes complete mechanistic and scientific sense. It's almost trivially obvious. And the correlation is, is excellent, as you'd expect. That's a big factor. And the other factor is population health dynamics. So how healthy is your population? Because metabolic uh, poor health is a massive decider of the severity of outcomes if you do get infected. So they're the two huge factors. Lockdown has been shown in many analyses to not even impact at all, pretty much, with statistical significance. And the other measures, distancing and masks and all, are just in the, in the noise, scientifically. So, you know, we've got these couple of huge factors, population health and severity of prior seasons, i.e. what proportion of your population has been spared in the last couple of years. And sadly, I don't like using the word ripe, but sadly, they're almost like dry tinder before a fire starts in March, April 2020. Uh, those factors are enormous. No one's talking about them. So I think in America, we have no correlation between the extent of lockdown across states and the actual severity of outcome. So across states is the same as across countries, no correlation. So I just don't understand that these people are not taking all of what I just said and 10 times more and just slapping themselves in the face in the mirror and saying, wakey, wakey, why am I ignoring all of this empirical evidence? What is it that's driving me to believe what's essentially become almost like a media narrative? I, I don't know the answer to your question, Steve. Mm. I don't know how these aloof people can fool themselves so profoundly. But I, I think without criticizing them, there's so much evidence that says at the very least, they should absolutely not be saying what they're saying so, so strongly, at the very least. And to be honest, they probably shouldn't be saying what they're saying at all. You know? Yeah, I, I would put it down. I'd add these two factors in the mix as to why I think some people are so vehemently um, supporting this idea that lockdowns or um, draconian or, or government-led initiatives um, are so effective and it's the lack of effectiveness that's caused the problem. I think these two things are playing out big style in 2020. The first is partisanship in mm. politics. I do think, I mean, you just listen to Sam Harris. I mean, He's, he's gunning for Trump, and, and most people are in the States, or at least the, the people yeah. with the mic. So I, I think that is, you know, there was, you kind of sense any opportunity to take a swipe at Trump and what he stands for. And unfortunately, there's this, he's now become like a synonym. <laughs> Anyone who thinks, uh, you know, that lockdowns aren't as effective and we should get out and return to old normal is basically a Trump supporter. I've had that half a dozen times already, either. So there, there definitely is that kind of correlation and it seems to be highly politicized right now. I do think that's driving some of the discord, some of the discussion. And um, I definitely see that through populations. Uh, there does seem to be a bias towards um, extreme left, not just left, but extreme left positions and support of these draconian uh, kind of government-led measures. I see that. And the second thing I see is you've, what you've rightly said is being wedded to your worldview um, of, um, of your education, your medical edu education. So if you are so hell-bent in you know, the, the purity of virology, uh, what we understand of it, vaccines, that they're just a, a God-given gift 
to the world. Um, if you are so, so strongly held that that is the narrative and that is the truth, I think it's difficult to kind of step away from that. I, I guess that's what's driving some of these smart people to think the way they do. Yeah, I guess that's certainly uh, part of the case for sure. The The way I look at it in a sense is a lot of American uh, professors, doctors in my network who, who agree 100% with me for what it's worth, <laughs> um, I think based on the science, but of course, maybe maybe I'm biased, but I don't think so because for the last few months, I've woken up in the early hours every morning and as per my problem-solving career, I have fought cognitive bias in myself for decades because it's the killer. It's the thing that will cause you to not resolve a problem as fast as you might. And that's death for me. So I always fear being wrong. And I always, when people criticize or bring another hypothesis up, rather than saying they're wrong and, and biasing towards mine, I do the opposite. I say, my God, what if they're right? And I agonize. And I go through their data and I say, is it possible I'm wrong? That's unacceptable. So, you know, so I've been uh, doing that every day for the last three months. And that's what protects me from the bias. But the way I look at American Europe or what I say to my American friends who say it's all to do with politics, I say, well, OK, let's say Europe is eight out of 10 psychotic in this uh, problem. And that might be because Europe is very wedded to certain organizations. Um, it might be the way Europe is just wired. But America would have been, let's say, four out of 10 crazy uh, because America's more freedom and independence. And you know what I mean? Different culturally, mm -hmm. less nanny state. But I think the political aspect that you described has brought them from the four out of 10 that they might have been up to the eight out of 10. So now Europe and America are both addressing things as crazily as we've described. Do, do you know what I mean? So America would have been way better except for this Trump factor. And the irony yeah. is, Steve, I've been attacked too, and it's crazy. A year or two ago, I would come out with things about universal healthcare and certain kind of socialist European ideals, and I'd be attacked by Trump supporters. I was called a left winger, a socialist, uh, that I was criticizing Trump. And that's done a complete flip because I haven't praised Trump, Trump zero, nothing. But just because I'm talking the way I'm talking, to your point, people are accusing me now of being right wing and libertarian and a Trumpite. And it's just extraordinary because I have stayed precisely the same, governed by the science and the data and my beliefs about sociology and social engineering. But that two, three years ago made me anti-Trump. And now, supposedly, it makes me pro-Trump. But I'm the same. So you can see there, it's all about, yeah, political perception. It's not about truth, not about data anymore. Yeah. I also think we're, we're becoming increasingly tribal, uh, you know, post-Brexit, mm. post, um, you know, our, our last general election, uh, now with this and, you know, all these kind of social justice issues that we're seeing right now, that um, we're losing the middle ground very quickly and you know, everyone has to pick a lane, has to pick a side. And um, unfortunately, that you know, you just see lots of correlations between uh, people's political bias and the way they're reflecting on this. Not entirely, but that seems to be highly correlated. And it, it worries me a bit because this shouldn't be about politics. This should, should, should be about health and returning our, 
our people to normal as quickly as possible. But um, let's move on a little bit. Let's move on to testing. So I know, you know, testing is the bedrock behind this response because it's with the testing that we can describe cases and that we can understand uh, causes of death. And of course, it's been central for at least the last five months, but has become, it's just exploded, you know, 150 odd thousand tests in England every single day. Um, with a, a new study that has just been put together. It's not really a study. It's more of just a surveillance program to increase recurrent testing of people at home, healthy people, up to 400,000 of those to be participating every single week with recurrent tests um, to see, you know, understand the science. Now, for me, I look at things like mass surveillance and I go, we've never done this before, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it now. There are scientific learnings. We may be able to better humanity because we're asking questions. We have the funding. We have the interest. Everyone's bought into this right now that we can learn things we could have only hypothesized before. I think that's great for science. But unfortunately, we are not doing this. It doesn't feel like we are pursuing testing with the benefit of understanding the science because the science isn't driving the performance and the policy. So talk to me about the testing. Maybe let's start with the test, Ivor. So the RT-PCR test, which is, you know, the, the test used globally um, with, you know, something you can change, which is the cycle thresholds. And I don't know how and if it's changed between the populations and the demographics, but we know that's something that can manipulate the strength of the response, whether it's a positive or false positive. Let's talk about this test and whether it's a viable test to do what we're doing now which is testing non-symptomatic people throughout the population. And we're getting all these cases. Talk to me a bit about that. Yeah, okay then, the PCR. So basically, I would say it's not fit for purpose after an epidemic has passed. In fact, it's directly misleading. Uh, it could be used to monitor, but not to share publicly the data, to monitor quietly and watch for trends, but it's being used, uh, obviously, as a battering ram to terrify everyone. That's the way I see it. So the PCR, people may think it finds corona, it finds COVID, uh, it does not. So depending on the particular model of test, it finds tiny viral fragments, you know, pieces of uh, RNA code, proteins. So some of them find one of them, some of them two, they're better, and some of them three, they're better again. But the bottom of it is really that it's finding little pieces of dead virus. It's not finding live viable, hey, this person is toxic virus. It is not. So that's the first problem. You can come up PCR positive today because you had COVID without hardly knowing it four weeks ago and it was passed and you're immune, but you'll come up as the case today. And this is, this is the worst part of it. it. The fragments can survive in the body for months. And uh, Korea proved this a couple of months ago and published on it uh, and many others, but no one cares. So that's, th that's one big problem. The second problem is you mentioned you can run it through more cycles and eventually it'll get so sensitive it'll find anything. Right. So that's another problem. And I don't even have the data on who's doing that or where that's that's completely obscure and opaque. And mm -hmm. um, the other thing is false positives generally. So if you're in a ramping epidemic, you don't need to worry about false positives because loads of people have it. People are dying. The ICUs are full and it's broadly everything it says 
is pretty true because you're in an epidemic. But after an epidemic, when you're down to low rates and recovered people who still have fragments, false positives become an enormous issue. And I'll give an example. There's various figures, but 1% false positives is kind of accepted. That means if you do 10,000 tests, you're going to get 100 false positives. People who come positive and they're not. Now, at the moment, by doing tens of thousands of tests, they're getting hundreds of positives. They're pretty much close to their numbers are roughly like the false positive numbers. So a huge amount of the positives may be false. They may be people fully recovered ages ago who have fragments. And of course, you could also have too many cycles being run, which will just jack up the false positive. So the test is not fit for purpose after an epidemic. And this point has been made again and again and again by professionals, doctors, people expert in this. After an epidemic, you have to get back to your primary tracker of what's going on is ICU symptomatic people, symptoms. How big is our problem? We need to measure the number of people with symptoms who are also positive. ICU's mortality. You can't go direct to the test. It's the wrong test for a post-epidemic period. And no one wants to acknowledge this. It's the wrong test. And in engineering, we say, if you don't measure it, it don't get fixed. If you don't measure it, you can't understand it. So in many cases, you want to make sure you measure a lot to better manage an issue. Here we have the exact opposite, and it occurs in engineering as well. The wrong measure for an issue, measuring means you will not progress, you will actually go the opposite way. You will overreact and cause bad policies, bad interventions. And that's what we're seeing. Now, I will say there's a possibility that this could rise again. But scientifically, you'd say, how could it possibly be for the winter in countries like Ireland, England, and most of Europe, where the susceptible have sadly passed, where community immunity through many, many different mechanisms has built up. Having a surge now that's sizable makes no scientific sense without a new virus, a second virus. Uh, anything could happen, but the fear around a second wave before the normal seasonal resurgence is huge. Doesn't make any scientific sense. But if you use PCR, you'll be able to fuel that fear because we know from many studies that coronaviruses and influenzas, you will always find them during the summer where there's no real impacts going on. We know this. It's published. Coronaviruses, you're going to find them in a couple of percent of people during the summer, and then you're going to find them in 5, 10, or 15% of people in the winter. You know, that's kind of symptomatic people. But the point is you're going to find the fragments. But the question is, what does it mean? And right now, the amount of interpretation into these cases that are not symptomatic, not in ICU, not even hospitalized, and certainly not dying, is quite frankly, it's bizarre. It's bizarre. And I think the use of the word cases is misleading in its own right. Okay, yeah. so if, if, we, if we do have someone who's admitted into NHS care in some way, shape or form, okay, let's call that a case. 
if someone's got a positive test, I, I think it's a bit rich to call that a case. And as you've said, there's there's a couple of issues I take with this test in particular. My understanding of it is that they you're not trying to you're not trying to find a signature for the whole virus. That's not the way it works. As you said, you're looking for small fragments of it, some signatures that are unique to this virus, assuming it's been fully sequenced and isolated properly, which again, there are questions around whether that has actually been done, if it's been purified. But assuming it has, they're looking for a, a uniqueness of this virus and they're looking to find one or two, as you say, small tiny signatures that suggest that is that virus. But what they're also looking for is the general signature pattern of a coronavirus, of which we know there are many. So I've noticed recently, not recently, but the last couple of months, that we've really dropped the word COVID or COVID-19, which is the disease state. And the language coming out of our government is coronavirus. Now, I don't know, I don't know whether that is intentionally for liability protection, but it seems a little bit manipulative because if what we're doing is really about trying to identify and or protect with vaccines, the general, you know, family of coronaviruses, that's very different to saying we are trying to address this pandemic with a virus that is just wreaking havoc, this specific virus, SARS-CoV-2 wreaking havoc across the world. I just thought that's a bit cute. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on that as to whether we are really even testing for the thing that we are saying is rampant in, in the world at the moment. Yeah, well, so the test in terms of specific to this SARS-CoV-2 virus, uh, I'm happy enough it broadly is. A lot of people are trying to say, oh, it's picking up other coronaviruses, of which there are many over the last centuries, millennia. Um, but I think it's probably reasonably good. And now that they're doing hyper-testing, and still finding it hard to find enough of it, kind of speaks to look. It was it's probably pretty okay. good at finding SARS-CoV-2, but your second your second point is the big one, um, and that's around like like you said, COVID versus SARS-CoV-2 virus. The way I look at it is, when there were deaths, it was all about deaths and COVID, the disease state, because that's what was exciting and drove action. Uh, when the deaths began to fade, you're absolutely right, we saw a transition. We were clearly told and agreed to manage COVID and not have it overwhelm the hospitals such that people may not get care. And in a couple of weeks, that happened exactly as we predicted with the normal viral curve. But then it switched to we want very few COVIDs. And then it switched more to hospitalization that, oh, we've still got people in the hospitals. We've still got COVID, maybe not so much death, but we still got COVID. And then when even COVID and the hospitalizations in ICU dropped off the map, which is way back in May, then it switched to the virus. So now we were trying to beat a virus, which is absurd. That's mm -hmm. the most absurd thing anyone ever said. Right. And you're right. Now it's about the virus. And the reason is they've run out of ICU and deaths. Now, the natural thing would have been back to what we said at the start. My God, we we prevailed. The ICUs are emptied. The hospitals are emptying. The mortalities practically disappeared. We're through this, guys. Celebrate. You know, sad the passing of the people, mostly aged and comorbid, but sad. 
um, celebrate, but they did the opposite. They did what you said. They, their, their whole mentality hunted, hunted for something that could keep this going. And what they had, of course, was PCR and the actual virus itself. Uh, and they're running with it. I mean, they are to this day running with it. Now, I've called this a case-demic because by no sane scientific person's definition have we got an epidemic anymore in Europe since May because the levels of mortality and impact are so low since the end of May, no one could call that an epidemic anymore. So June, July, August, we're now nearly three months with patently no epidemic. Now, I don't care about the organizational definitions of epidemic because in 2009, to jack up hysteria about H1N1, the big organizations that define these things, it's on the record in a Spiegel article, they dropped the bar for what a pandemic was and they kind of took out the definition that it had to have major impact on health, mortality, etc., and they dropped it down more to just prevalence, right? So that happened in 2009. Actually, as it happens with a lot of influence from the pharmaceutical industry, this is on the record, right? Mm. That was the swine flu crisis. So the bar was dropped and I say, no. The other thing that happened at the time in that article, it was noted, a CNN reporter pointed out to the organization, it was the WHO, guys, your website still says a pandemic is major impact, blah, blah, blah. And they checked and it was true. And they quickly took the website down and changed it. So the bar now for pandemic epidemic has been lowered so low that I say that can't be the definition we use. Uh, there has to be big impact or it can't be an epidemic. So right now we have nearly three months in Northern Europe with no epidemic, but a case-demic. So it's exactly what we spoke to. It's all around PCR results. And mm. people, when I put out the data, and it's truly shocking, and you can maybe put a link or two to some of the graphs I've done, where you put the cases from March right up to August on the top of an axis, and you see a huge hump during the actual epidemic, March, April, and then it comes right down. And then the last month or eight weeks, it's rising up again with increased testing and hyper-testing. So that's a case-demic because when you put the actual mortality below the x-axis, you see that back in March, April, there was indeed a big hump in mortality and it fell right down by May. But now we've got loads of cases, but nearly no mortality and ICU. So the epidemic's gone and a case-demic has replaced it. Now, people say to me, oh, but the deaths could follow. Anything could happen in the world. There is no such thing as certainty. However, this has behaved exactly like prior influenzas. All of the science would suggest that it will return in the winter when we've got more susceptible people built up, and sadly, more people with, say, late-stage cancers. And, and in the winter, when the virome surges in Northern Hemisphere, there will be more susceptible people who sadly will be exposed to this, but it's going to be much smaller than it was the first time around. Uh, a second wave out of season for this makes no scientific sense. Anything could happen, but why they wouldn't open up society in the safe summer when the epidemic is over 
and watch for a rise in symptomatic hospitalizations that's substantial and then move back in with restrictions at that point. That is the only crisis management approach that you could have any credence in at this point is to do what you want with the PCR, but pull everything back, allow community immunity to develop further to protect the susceptible next winter. We know how to protect the susceptible. Very hard to hide them. But if the whole population's exposed and past it, then they're protected. So I would say during the summer, we should be spreading safely with some protection of the still elderly and sick. Though to be honest, most of them who've passed it are okay anyway now. And then during the summer, allow more T-cell, more mucosal, more inherent community immunity to develop in the healthy and therefore better protect the at-risk group next winter. But we're doing the opposite. We're trying to suppress it when there's no real impact. And we're, if anything, probably going to hurt people next winter with what we're doing. So can you imagine that? If people could internalize that, our strategy now is, if anything, probably going to cause more illness and death next winter. I mean, that's the probable outcome. I don't even, I don't have to imagine it. I, I think that's it's it feels certain to me. It's just going to be very difficult to tease that out in the data, right? So it's going to be very difficult to be able to say what are lockdown-induced uh, illnesses or cases or deaths as a result of the things that we have done, not just in lockdown, but the subsequent months, these these mask wearing, this you know uh, avoidance of social interaction, everything that you've just described. I'm concerned. I'm concerned by that. But I guess I keep coming back to the question. And it's a question I can't ask ask over because it doesn't make any sense. But, you know, we've spent, you know, by my my calculations, we've spent £190 billion in the UK so far on this epidemic in the UK. £190 billion. £160 billion of that has gone towards stimulus packages. So, um, the the current you know fueling the furlough scheme and you know giving um, government backed debt um, as well as just obviously supporting businesses we've got another thirty billion penned for the next six months or so to support companies but out of that spend we've got thirty two billion that Matt Hancock has personally signed off on ten billion pounds for testing. 10 billion pounds. I mean, it's, mm. it's lost, the, you know, the values have lost all meaning, but he just signed another contract for another 5 billion pounds to go forward with one of the big farmers and, you know, some of these uh, services companies to continue mass testing, not just the, you know, testing sites that we've seen popped up all around the country, but now this kind of home visit approach, weekly recurrent testing. And as you say, when we're using a test that is not fit for purpose, I, again, I, I get, you know, romantically, I get caught up in this idea of, but this is going to be good for science. But only if the test is good. <laughs> the test is no good. This is no good for science. We're going to spend loads of money. We're all going to get obsessed about it. it absolutely. I mean, the study has been confirmed that this effort isn't just study. This isn't just curiosity for some researchers in, you know, white lab coats. This is to inform policy so we can more quickly and more accurately understand where we need to apply restrictions around the country. So part of me thinks, Ivor, this is um, this is fear. The government's fear is that we are going to have a flu season, just like we always have had. This may or may not contribute to it, 
but we are going to see people go. We're going to see people with coughs, sniffles, people some serious cases, and some people go. We see that. We, you know, we've got an end, endemic curve of respiratory diseases that we know full too well. I've got it. I've got access to it, and I'm not in the government, and I'm not a scientist. So they clearly know this information, and they know it's coming. But now everyone's hypersensitive to these, you know, these issues, and we've never done, you know, pervasive influenza testing. Actually, we don't even talk about influenza in, in ONS reports. We talk about influenza and pneumonia. We actually talk about influenza-like illnesses. So we've not really done testing before, and now we're going to test everyone and everything. Now, I, I, look, I look at that and go, the reason we're acting the way we're acting is because there's a lot of pressure by the people onto the government to make sure they control this. And unfortunately, everything, everyone's hypersensitive to colds, and issues re related to, to this. But secondly, they have spent, uh, what was it, £5 billion so far, pre-committed, at risk, for vaccine development and production. They are producing vaccines as of September with various firms around the country. So they can have uh, 300 million doses ready ASAP for at-risk experimental vaccines that have yet to be safety tested that have yet to go through their efficacy testing. And I look at that and go, the train is already gone. This is unstoppable. We want to test. We have a flu season we're going to try and control through propaganda. And we've got vaccines on the way because we've got vaccines on the way. And therefore, that's the narrative. I, I sound like as if I'm being very cynical and conspiratorial, but I'm struggling to understand why we'd behave this way when we know the flu season coming. And for all intents and purposes, there's no indicators that the flu season is going to be any more worse than we've seen it previously. Thoughts on that? Yeah, well, ironically, the probability it'll be less bad because of what we've seen across 16 countries, that the prior season being severe meant that you got very little effect from COVID. So now that there's been a big whack across Europe, that's normalized everything. So the susceptible to these kinds of issues, a lot of them sadly have passed. So if anything, the expectation would be it won't be so severe. I mean, if you take an example, 2018 flu was severe. Quite a lot of hospitals in uh, UK got overwhelmed and uh, it was in the newspapers. Uh, no one did anything. And to be honest, that's not because they were callous, because there's not a whole lot you can do. This is nature. But interestingly, there was around 20,000 extra deaths in January alone in the UK, right? There's a newspaper article on this in 2018. Now, you've got around 40-something excess deaths in this whole season from corona or COVID. Uh, there were 20,000 excess deaths in January alone of 2018 in the UK with the severe flu that happened. And a lot of countries got hit hard. And across all of Europe, in the Euromomo countries where the death, excess death is tracked, 360 million people. 2018 respiratory season had 140,000 excess deaths related to the season. And this year, it's 180,000 approximately. It's not much different than 18. It just happened in a shorter, tighter burst with no excess death up to March and Corona kind of took the whole lot. So you're right. The behavior now is a very sinister switch in our whole approach to these things. We've always coexisted, taken reasonable measures, 
and looked after the sick. But now there's a paranoia and hysteria that's a first in human history. Uh, they did try to do it in 2009, you know, with swine flu, a hysteria built. Billions upon billions were spent on vaccines. But then, of course, it passed and the vaccines were all thrown in the bin. And it was a big loss of money, particularly Germany. But we did kind of go through this before. This one is bigger than H1N1 swine flu 2009. And therefore, the hysteria has really gotten legs. But essentially, when the epidemic passes in a northern uh, temperate uh, region, with the curve we've seen, it's too late by the time you have the meds ready. You know, you can use them on older susceptible people for the next winter season, and they might mitigate or help a bit, and that's fine. But, but you're no longer treating the big epidemic with the latest virus. It's already passed and done most of its impact by the time you're ready. And they don't seem to realize this. Fear of a second wave means it feels like, well, we'd better keep spending money and be ready. Um, and I suppose there's some logic in that. But all the do you, re do you really think? Do you really think that they? Do you really think these experts all around the world uh, are able to go against the science and honestly look themselves in the mirror and say, "We genuinely have a risk of a second spike in countries that have already seen one." Now, that's not talking. About, let's not talk about Argentina or you know no. the Philippines or South Africa or Australia, which are going through you know their their seasonal. First spike, spike now, right? Their first bike, right? So, yeah. you know, I, I couldn't imagine, honestly, Ivor, I can't imagine anyone being able to say there, there is evidence, there is science, there is history to prove that there is a probability we are going to have to deal with another kind of exponential looking spike. So I would like to think people know that this isn't going to be a March-April repeat. And therefore, I have to ask the question, we are going to be transferring wealth in the order of trillions of dollars across every major country who are just scrambling to buy their, you know, their billions worth of um, um, vaccines right now for a virus that has had its brutal impact already. Yeah. And I, I, I have to ask the question, why? And for me, you know, just leading the witness a little bit, um, because I'm okay with being a little bit more conspiratorial than you. You know, it it looks like there has been a very strong push from the WHO, you know, the WHO, Gavi, Seppi, Bill Gates, I'm going to mention his name. I know he gets a lot of flack right now. But if you look at that cohort with the pharmaceutical companies, there has been a push, a strong push to free the markets of vaccines for a while. And the argument has always gone that we can't, we can't, motivate biotech firms to create vaccines for third world countries that need them until someone pays pay for them but they have to pay for that effort at risk and they need to stockpile stuff before they need it and the only way to go do that is for big first world countries to take the plunge and invest in that R&D invest in the manufacture and enable the free flowing movement of vaccines and then in doing so we can move towards a system where we vaccinate the population versus just, you know, the kids and the elderly. Now, 
that for me feels like it's a no-brainer. You listen to the Who language, you listen to the Gavi language, you listen to Bill Gates. This is really a message of intent, intent that we should be moving towards a global schedule of vaccination, repeat vaccination across the threats that we see today, whether it be coronaviruses, influenza, you know, Ebola, whatever things that we see. And that for me feels like that's the cohesion, that's the unity, that's what allows us to see this lockstep behavior across every single country. And, you know, because the the cynics of my of that argument will be. Steve, if if you really think the UK government have got it against their people, then why are France, Germany, Italy, and you know New Zealand acting the same? They're not all in it together. Well, they're in it together if they believe the who message, and that's you know an inevitable future we must we must you know through technology bring to our people. Otherwise, we're all doomed. If they buy that that message, then everything they're doing supports their worldview, which is we must have more vaccines in the world, not less. Yeah, I mean, hmm. so there's a very simple thing you can do is do a root cause diagram, which is required for any complex uh, interactional problem. And this is one. So if you put aside the technical of this, uh, there's a kind of motivational root cause diagram or, you know, leadership or structural. Why did this happen in terms of human behavior and influence and corporate behavior and influence? You can do a root cause diagram for that as well. It's just as technical as the virology stuff. So if you do it, you will find that all roads go back to a few organizations that have global influence and all the countries are being jerked on their strings. So yeah, it's not even a conspiracy because it's open to all that the WHO, uh, as one example, has been handed the baton to conduct the orchestra of all the countries in the world. So you don't need to wonder, you know, why are all the countries behaving the same when it seems irrational? Uh, Well, because the conductor has been identified clearly Mm -hmm. and uh, the orchestra is playing. So there's no point saying, why is the violin player playing kind of in tempo with the trombone guy? How did that happen? How come they're all playing weird? Well, because the conductor is conducting them. (laughs) And that's not conspiracy because that's just obvious. Why are the WHO doing it? And I think you're going to have to link the Spiegel article. So that's a mainstream German newspaper, international edition, 2010. The only way you're going to grasp why all of this is happening, other than group psychosis, etc., is to read the Spiegel article. It's an eight-page comprehensive article. And it explains the driving forces for this beyond just countries being worried, beyond just politicians wanting to help the people and not be seen to have allowed people to be hurt, Uh, beyond the scrabbling, grasping academics who are pushing fear because they see grants and research coming their way and they're sitting on soft arses with government salaries and able to ruin society with no thought to themselves because they've got their eye on the ball. Grant money, you know, more research, technical stuff. That's what they're interested in. But if you put aside all those individuals and individual countries, the Spiegel article explains what's the kind of more universal driver. And it is an enormous desire from WHO, World Economic Forum, 
uh, certain individuals that were mentioned, uh, and and many organizations that are hugely influential on a global scale all want this technological march forward to massive medication and control and management of the world, like a huge project. Um, so, th- so that's that's the driving force. Now you could say, well, well, I'll do a thought experiment like Einstein. I'd be a bit arrogant. If I went back to March 2020 uh, in a time machine and I magically, those organizations and all of their associated pharmaceutical companies and all those individuals, I picked a list of 10 or 12, which, which would appear on the root cause diagram. And I said, okay, blink of an eye, they cease to exist just for a few months. Otherwise, though, Corona comes, everything happens the same, but individual countries speaking together uh, worldwide, joining hands and managing the pandemic. I'd say there'd be no extra deaths whatsoever. Everything would have happened as we saw it up to May, but then it would have logically faded away. So I'd say that it's not like these organizations are fully responsible for everything we're seeing, but equally, if they did not exist, this thing would have been concordant. It would have run as a big crisis and it would have faded as a big crisis. So there are crucial ingredients in the unusual behavior we're seeing over the past few months. I mean, they are, it's not a conspiracy whether you agree with them or don't is a separate matter. Whether you say they're, they've got any element of malice or whether they're just, you know, wrong or enthused about technology, it doesn't matter. If they weren't there, this wouldn't have happened, but we wouldn't have had any more deaths either. Yeah, I, I totally agree, right? And, and that's what I grapple with either. I'm grappling with this idea of population management, population control, and how vaccines play a role in that as well as biometric identity. I look at that and say, that does seem to be, as you say, a technological march forward we are we are heading towards. And um, you just look at the, the willingness through countries to invest at risk huge amounts of tax money on technologies, on medicine, that hasn't yet to be proved. That hasn't yet been proved. Comes with risk, both on how effective is it, and whether it has either acute or long-term injuries or increased susceptibility to other uh, virus and uh, viral infections. That is a probable outcome if some of these go wrong. You look at that, and you go, "That's huge risk." You look at the the current risk profile. You know how many people are dying. What's the current need? It just doesn't add up. It doesn't add up that we take that gamble with our money and with people's lives and with these trials when it isn't there. It for me, for me, I'd say, do you know what? With the the hundreds of billions being spent spent across the globe right now on vaccine procurement, would it not make more sense for that money to be devoted towards an educational campaign and a subsidy campaign to get people eating nourishing foods? and getting them off the junk. Like that for me is a no brainer because it gets back to your point, which is this is about host health. This is about the susceptible. This is less about the virus and it's more about the susceptible. If we can dramatically reduce those susceptible, everyone will be more robust. 
it kind of logically makes sense to most people, yet we're seeing no real effort other than like a lip service obesity campaign that, you know, it was a flash, a flash a month ago. We've not heard anything since because everything is focused on testing, trials, vaccines, and preparing ourselves for further restrictions because they're inevitably going to come in the fall, in the winter. It's just beggar's belief. Why, why can we not devote that scientific curiosity, the engineering effort, the technology, the money to enlighten us, enlighten us how to protect ourselves? Because the true protection is get yourself healthy. Yeah, but sometimes there's simple answers to complex problems. So we had a simple answer a few minutes ago where we said, look, if these organizations, right, whether they're right or wrong is a separate question. If these organizations weren't there, none of this would have really happened. It'd be over now. But you can also get a simple answer to your question. And unfortunately, it's money uh, because this happens all the time. There's no money, technology, development, jobs. There's no interest from any of the influencers in diet and improving people's health so their susceptibility will drop by by an order of magnitude, maybe. No one cares. And I know it's sad. It's kind of depressing. No one cares. That stuff is all woo to the people who influence policy. It's tragic, but it's a fact. So The, popu the population would challenge you and say, surely not. Surely our governments are there to serve the people. They, and I think there's 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 I think people will wake up and realize, you know, it looks like more like we're we're here to serve our governments at the moment. Yeah, well, they could challenge me, but again, at the risk of being arrogant, I would say they would be wrong. Because we have been through the fat, we've been through the cholesterol, we've been through all the statin wars, and the reality has been proven that over the last few decades, the people of influence set the science. They define what is important to work on. They even manage, for God's sake, to have the wrong diet prescribed in all the world's guidelines to address chronic disease. So only now, after decades, are we seeing green shoots of going to a lower carb, lower refined carb, lower seed oil diet to actually fix the problems we've created. But for decades... The people of influence managed to keep science upside down. So we've got proof points going on for decades, all the way back to the smoking. For 30 years, the tobacco industry successfully influenced science to say, we don't know that tobacco causes cancer. And eventually it fell over. And now we've had 30 or 40 years before the cholesterol fat farce is falling over. So people need to understand that the bad science that's supported and funded by the people who are in this to make the money can last for decades with countless deaths clocked up before it eventually gets fixed. And I'd say it's a similar thing now that, you know, all of the diet and health thing is completely confused because of the fat and cholesterol junk science uh, to the point that, you know, countries and leaders at this point genuinely believe there's nothing you can do about diet. People just won't do what we tell them. Uh, it's never going to make a bang for the book. And we've got these really nice people over here who have loads of expertise who are kind of saying to us, forget about diet, guys. We've got magic uh, beans. We're going to have magic technologies that are going to fix everything. 
And what do politicians and all the rest do? They say, oh, nice people, experts, you know, with magic beans. <laughs> and, and I know it sounds scathing, but, but it deserves to be expressed in that manner. Of course, there's an enormous amount of influential industries and structures that are intimately tied to them that have a deep, deep desire to see development programs for highly profitable endeavors. And they've got the ear of all the governments, as we described earlier. So what we're seeing is not in the least bit surprising. Uh, I'm just disappointed at the doctors and academics around the world who kind of know what I said and kind of have to keep quiet because their career might suffer if they speak up. Um, that That's the saddest thing that I think in the last 30 years, we've lost a lot. We've become a safest society. No one left behind. You know, we've got all these issues uh, that you described of left and right and identities and all this noise. No one can be offended. And that society is ripe for plucking by the money guys. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I know what you're saying. And I, you know, I sympathize for, you know, doctors, whether they be doctors, nurses, people working in GPs, people working in hospitals, whether it be, you know, in A&E or surgeons or what have you, uh, as well as, you know, people in PhD positions. Like there are lots of people that even know better or through their business of their job, they, they don't know better. And I think some people do need to recognize that just because you're a nurse, just because you're a, a GP or because you're a doctor does not mean that they're keeping their finger on the pulse and really in a challenging their status quo, challenging their belief structure, really understanding the science beyond the indoctrination of their medical career. So I do think first and foremost, we we put too emphasis, too much emphasis on the people that work in INHS to be, you know, the people that know the best. You know, you need to just look at, you know, overweight issues in that demographic and you say, okay, something's going wrong. But even put that aside and say there are a subset of those people that do keep their finger on the pulse, have got themselves, you know, completely current with the science. You know, they've got mortgages, they've got careers, they've got grants they need to receive, they've got government money to, you know, continue their research, or just generally, they know if they speak out, the hospital might, you know, sack them. You know, there's so many things going on here. And I know if I was, you know, up to my eyeballs in debt, and I had a mortgage, and I had a car, and I've got my kids going to school, and I've got all of this, that, and other, the idea that I would possibly challenge my career, which means that, hey, I might not be employable because I've spoken out, I've now been labeled as a conspiracist yeah. uh, or, or a heretic. Would I do that if, 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 if I didn't have a slush fund to last me a few years? Probably not. And I think people don't, don't see that. They see that every person who works in the medical profession cares deeply about people and that kind of guiding star, that value system, that moral compass means that they will always tell you the truth. And I don't think that is the case, not because they're being malicious, but they are protecting themselves and their family. Do you, well, do you agree? I agree totally. For the, for the army of cognitive dissonance we've seen, uh, there's equally or a bigger army of people who know what we're saying, but for the reasons you described, can't really say it. And it's just sad, but that's the way the world is. I, I, would, I would exhort the people who are nearer the end of their career or have good financial means from a successful medical or academic career uh, to reach inside themselves and find the courage. 
but the problem is they've also they will also worry about their reputation being called a conspiracy theorist. That's a weaponized word. The anti-vax is a weaponized word. I got all the vaccines. I don't care. I, I to be honest, I never really researched so much. I don't care about the so-called negative effects. They do exist because they paid out billions of dollars in, in problems and and my condolences to the people who've been negatively affected. But I, I'm pretty tough that way and, and I think it's a relatively rare phenomenon. What I'm worried about is the enormous waste of money which comes from taxpayers for ineffective or very poor cost-benefit medications. That's That's my only beef. And I'll just give it a simple example. And it took me, it took me a minute around a month or two ago when someone was wrangling with me about this topic of this vaccine agenda, which I, I stay out of it because it's just toxic. But it took me a minute to do the number needed to treat. And the number needed to treat is the number of people you medicate to get one to benefit. So do it for this. Based on the death rate from COVID, the number needed to be vaccinated, if you assume boosters and all, which are almost inevitably needed, and you assume as certain individuals and WHO and elsewhere have said, we need to vaccinate everyone. Okay, so go with that. The number needed to treat to save one aged comorbid life, and this is simple math, is probably in the thousands. So thousands of people treated to save a year of aged comorbid life. So the NICE in England have a rule of 20,000 sterling for a year of quality life saved. So that might be five years of an aged person who's got issues or one year of a middle-aged working person who's healthy. Do you know what I mean? 20,000 mm-hmm. per quality adjusted life year uh, extended. A vaccine for this going by the actual impacts seen, the actual data would be hundreds of thousands of euro per quality life year extended. And that's just the math. So I'm just amazed people are not looking at the cost benefit. Forget about the vaccine hysteria and the fear and, and all the concerns. Just look at the cost benefit. And the reality is now the epidemic has passed. And given that all of the science would say a smaller hump next winter, if you correct what I just said for the future impacts of SARS-CoV-2, you can probably make that couple of hundred thousand, maybe go up to five or six hundred thousand. You know, because we didn't have the vaccine to mitigate the big impact, as you described, that we've been through. So you're talking maybe nominally half a million euro per per life year extended, roughly. I mean, this is rough. I could be out by a hundred grand, whatever. It still makes no <laughs> medical economic sense. You and know, then you layer on you layer on top of that. Obviously, the economic destruction. Oh. Wow. You know that that we've that we've seen to our economy, but you know, let's 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 make this personal. Let's let's make this real. I mean, this is this is going to affect people, uh, and I'm not trying to be doomsday on this, but you know, the reality is we we haven't felt the effect, or many people haven't, because of the cushion that has been applied to our yeah. economy. As that cushion gets gets pulled away, because it can't last forever, 
there is going to be some devastation here across many people, from people that thought they were completely safe to people that know they're already on, on that line. And that is not only going to come with economic challenges, but that comes with mental health challenges. And it also comes with health challenges, right? And we know yeah. that is coming. I think everyone knows there is some darkness coming as a result of this, because we are in, you know, we, it's been over 300 years so we've, since we've seen this level of shrinkage in our economy. Um, you know, 1700s was the last time we saw something like this. You know, this this makes 2008 look like nothing. It makes the Great Depression look like nothing. And I don't think people have fully grasped that at the minute we're in this honeymoon period relatively because we've not felt the consequence of the economic destruction that we've caused. And again, I'm not trying to be negative, but uh, it is a reality we're going to face and it is going to have a knock-on effect on how you know, people's lives, people are going to lose lives as a result of the decisions we've made, not just about the vaccine development. Yeah, we're in the fool's paradise of someone who goes insane with a credit card. Uh, but when the bailiffs call, you know, and take your car and turf you out, then you realize how foolish you were. But you're right, we're in the middle of it now. The credit card is swiping, 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 and we're racking up enormous debt. Uh, debt. Uh, ironically, we're not racking up death at all because the epidemic has passed. But if you go and do a thought experiment again, you go back to March and you show leadership and you ask the people like Sweden to deploy the WHO 2019 guidelines for pandemics. They say no lockdowns, no masks. That's 2019. People don't know this. Wow. Still on the web. If we deployed the WHO official guidelines of late 2019 in March across Europe, and we know from Sweden, I would say that we would have saved hundreds of billions of dollars. And we would, over the next couple of years, have less death and suffering than we are now going to have. So we would have saved all the money. And we would have had less impact on the health of Europe than we have had. And that seems too huge for people to internalize. But I'm telling you by the math, that's just the reality. We have yeah, just... We, 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 we've taken this to a dark place, and I'm sorry, because it is, is me leading the witness here. I do apologize, Ivor, but there, there is, is an ugly truth we're going to need to face. Let's cut, Let's bring this... To a close now, I've, I've got these last two questions that um, I think you can answer fairly elegantly and um, efficiently. Uh, the first is around herd immunity, and then the second really is just your your projections, your flu season projection. So if you want to bunch them together or attack them separately, mm. uh, talk to me about what is community immunity, because there's this obsession with antibodies. And we know that the antibody testing rate is relatively low. And therefore, most people, laymen, are easy, easily triggered by that and saying that means none of us have been in contact with this virus. And therefore, we're all susceptible. We're all, you know, sitting ducks ready for this to pounce. Can you talk about that and how that's a misconception and then kind of lead into what you anticipate mm. will happen through this winter? Well, actually, there is a perfect segue into that because with limited time, um, you can probably put the link in. I interviewed Professor Bida Stadler in Switzerland, and he's actually known as the vaccine pope of Switzerland. And he's the Fauci equivalent, director of the 
immunological facility and hospital there. He's their top immunologist and he's retired. Uh, I interviewed him and we went through all of that question. If anyone wants to understand it, we went through it all. And he said he fell for the novel virus thing as well. And he said much to his shame because he should have known better because it's immunology 101. As soon as we could see that infected symptomatic people traced, and we had this back in January, 70 to 80% of the people who lived with those symptomatic definite cases with no masks in their houses, buildings, associates in work, 70 to 80% from the get-go never got it. In other words, 70 to 80% of the population was de facto immune from the start. So it was a new virus, but novel is the word suggesting that everyone is naive and has no immunological response. It's completely new, like bubonic plague or something. But he said it was never true. So a huge percentage were automatically true cross-immunity to prior coronaviruses. It shares a huge amount of structure with all the ones that came before. The reason the kids and younger people are almost unaffected is they have already got fresh immunity from all the coronaviruses the last 20 years. The reason the elderly and the ill are affected badly is because they're immunocompromised, um, not really because they're naive. So essentially, you should really watch that interview. We tried to do it in layman's terms, but herd immunity is having enough people in the population who are effectively resistant to infection that the large amount of the population can't get it and therefore the pockets of people who are susceptible are protected. That's just herd immunity. The best guess now is around 10 or 12% of antibody positive in your country, you're essentially reached herd immunity because there's another huge percentage that won't have antibodies, but they were immune through many other mechanisms that don't show up in an antibody test. So that's, and that's, that's largely mucosal and T-cell? Is, is that right? Mu Just that? Mucosal and T-cell. And I see now recently, and I predicted this a couple of months ago, as soon as T-cell starts getting popularly known, they're going to attack it. And they are. So all over the internet in the last few weeks, we're seeing we don't know that T-cells work. We don't know this. So you see the fear is being lathered on again. So every time something comes up that's good news and true news, it needs to be you developed. see a pushback. And I, I think seasonality is an example. It is beginning to get around from myself and others from the work of Hope Simpson, that brilliant British doctor and, and, and much published science, that this corona is going to be sharply seasonal and regional like all the ones before it and the influenzas. But as that began to gather traction around the world and get discussed, hey presto, the WHO came out with a big announcement, this is not seasonal. So it's almost like every time that a scientific truth of usefulness and interest arises and becomes widespread, guess what? The organizations we talked about, they come out and say, it's not true. So, you know, not conspiracy, but I don't know what's in these guys' heads. So back to immunity. So we've got this huge level of mucosal immunity, innate immunity, T-cell immunity, you know, white cell immunity, 
a huge machinery of our incredible immune system has been monitoring and recording the last hundreds of years of viral protein fragments that say non-self potentially dangerous. And that's why when Corona came, it never became exponential, as Professor Levitt said. It was only exponential very briefly. And then as Professor Stadler said, the coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, immediately began to stumble over countless people in the population who were already de facto immune. And that's why the curve slowed down, rose steadily, and then curled over in the classic pattern because it was stumbling over immune people left, right, and center. We already had a big piece of immunity before it even started. So it, it got a go. And then because of the immunity acquired by the 10 or 20% who were being affected, rapidly they either passed or became immune. It now had a ton more people stumble over and it was having a difficulty even finding people. And that's why we see the long, steady decline of the Gompertz curve. It's simple dynamics. It's the same as influenza. So that, that's herd immunity. And you can put a link to Professor Stadler's interview and people oh, can go deeper. And that's a also Also like your Creon Levitt discussion. Oh. I know that's super geeky. But um, if you want to understand these layers of uh, immunological response and, you know, the, the machinery that is our immune system. Oh, wow. That conversation was amazing. Well, actually, you're right. It's kind of a it's a kind of a pair. So Creon goes through all of the technology and the sexy science. And um, with Professor Stadler, I actually asked in advance that we keep it at a high level for lay people, broad concepts, which he did very well. So um, and he had stories too of islands where they introduced measles to illustrate his points. It's beautiful. Uh, so that's a great segue because at the end of our interview. I explained to him the horror of what we're seeing, that Ireland is now bringing in mandatory masks, blah, 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 even though all of what we've said means that that's absurd. And he said, well, he said, what I can tell you, Ivor, is my sympathies for you in Ireland, but in Switzerland, this is over. We're finished with it. So that speaks to the second point. What would all the science and all the logic and mathematics say is going to happen? Doesn't mean it will, nothing's 100%, but what would it say? It'd say that the countries that have reached a few hundred per million deceased have gone through the Gompertz curve with a significant impact, like Ireland, England, Sweden, Switzerland, Belgium, blah, 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 blah. They have reached a de facto or effective herd immunity. It's a, it's a maligned word, but that's disgraceful because they've effectively had the virus pass through, take the susceptible and leave in its wake a bunch of fresh immunity in the people who weren't already effectively immune. It's a simple concept and it's passed through. So what should happen by every single shred of logic and science, if you were planning, what should happen is you'll now see pockets where people were not affected popping up, fine. And in the winter, you'll have new susceptible people and the immune system of mammals in the winter becomes depressed. So between those seasonal and uh, gathering of more susceptible people, because people get older all the time, people get new cancers and their immune systems are compromised. So we're going to have a new batch of susceptible people and we're going to have a seasonal slump 
in immuno uh, kind of uh, power. And together they'll make for a hump in the winter in the Northern Hemisphere in, in Europe. Again, a repeating hump? Uh, a, a, a wave, would you anticipate? Or is this well, like a one, I, off, one and done? I would never use the word wave because it's associated with the 1918 flu and it's used to fear monger. The 1918 flu had a spring, uh, normal time of year, spring, and it hit them pretty hard. They then had an autumn out of season wave. And that was a wave because it was truly unusual and it caused the biggest impact in death. But that wave, it's there's a consensus now it was a different virus, either a big mutation or an 1870s strain that had come back. And the reason was because it hit a completely different demographic. There is no sense that a virus in spring would come back in the same population and hit completely different people, young people. It makes no sense. So that and other points of logic say it was a big mutation or it was it was a different virus in the 1870s. And that's why the old were spared in autumn 18. So that's where the wave terminology comes from. And it's inappropriate to use for this more classic uh, new virus that's gone through the population. So I'd say a winter resurgence of an endemic okay. virus. That's okay, what, you, you, you're being particular with the words just so we don't, yeah. We don't um, add add too much weight to them, but you know, me just being a lame, layman, just looking at oh. the pattern, the pattern of respiratory disease, um, ebb and flow. Right? It was mm. we we see we as you say we see a resurgence or we see a wave, a slight undulation of effects related to res all respiratory diseases, some of which yep. are just chronic life-driven stuff like bronchitis and other more viral, bacterial-driven infections. But we see those kind of wave up and down in line with the flu season right so it, it yeah it, it, i guess my 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 kind of tag on to what you're saying i just want to kind of validate whether you think this is a fair assessment is if we take a look at the overall total mortality um what um, curve that we see throughout the uk for example that really is the ceiling in which we'd anticipate people to go throughout the kind of seasonal period here on in so for the next six months we'd anticipate that that is the ceiling. Now, obviously, we burst, it, we burst through the ceiling in March and April, so anything is possible. But on probabilities, based on all the data that we have from the ONS, it's very likely we're going to sit within that overall total mortality, which is all causes of everything, from aged to cancers to injury to poisons to all sorts of things. Now, Within that total mortality, there is a wave of respiratory disease that we kind of we track as well. But that is everything that falls under that gamut, right? So as we've mm. already said, pneumonias, influenza, to bronchitis, and all sorts of things, COPD, etc. And if you follow that that wave, that undulation, um, and you say, okay, well, that really is the susceptible people that we could consider our targets, our prime for serious conditions relating to COVID or coronavirus, then a pr proportion of those could be coded as COVID-19 in this winter. Why? Because we're testing. We weren't testing before. We weren't, we weren't writing down on death certificates died from coronavirus. I, I doubt that really is <laughs> really coded in any death certs, but we were writing pneumonia and influenza-like illness. So I anticipate some of that influenza-like illness death that we'd otherwise see undulating throughout the winter period will now be coded up as COVID-19. And that will be a repeated pattern that we see 
year in, year out, because this virus is a particle, it's part of the virus, it's going to hang around just like all the rest of them do. This isn't going away, even though we use language which suggests it's gone or it's fizzled out, it's faded. It's not that it's gone, it's just that what has gone is the susceptible until there's a resurgence of susceptibility in the winter. Have, have I kind of characterized that correct? Or do you want to kind of correct anything? Uh, absolutely not. That, that's exa- and I, li- I like what you said, particularly because you, what may happen in the winter is you're going to, we started measuring Corona only. So there's a lot of influenza. One MIT study back in around April or May, looking at New York, I think, they actually said, we got to be careful here, guys, because of the uh, cases, the bad cases, they went in and found 28% of influenzas as well. And they said, we're ignoring the influenzas. This is completely corona or bust. Even people who didn't get a test, they were assuming corona. So it's crazy. So I think next winter, if if they want corona hysteria, what they can do, and let's, let's see, can we predict this? There's going to be a ton of coronas all through the winter. They rise. And you can find anyone who dies next winter in the way you described from respiratory or any other issue in the winter time frame where you get excess death. And if you go sniffing around the mall with a PCR test, you're going to find a lot of corona. So you're going to generate a massively inappropriately high number of corona deaths next winter compared to what's really actually happening. And sadly, the way they've been behaving, I I think they'll be at that like a rat up a drain pipe. Just sadly, I, based I totally on the way agree. they've been behaving. I totally agree. So what I've been doing, again, without, without the credibility behind my name to su- suggest there's authority in my speculation and my projection, but I've taken that that position and I've said there's a, there's the probable, you know, deaths of deaths with corona, if we're being honest. And then there's the likely reported COVID-related deaths, which will be overcoding because we're going to go looking for it. Oh, yeah. And both both of those are realities, though, because it doesn't matter whether it's true or not true. They're still going to fe- they could still feature in our reality. So, the pure scientist in you says, "Hey, it's going to be a a marginable hump." The the realist in you says, "We're going to have a bit more than a hump. A bit more, you know, um, it's still going to fit within total mortality. It's still going to fit within." The, the hump that you'd otherwise see from all respiratory diseases, but it's going to be more of a hump than perhaps the reality of this virus is. But nonetheless, we're going to have distorted reality. That being said, I, my speculation is that neither of those two projections are going to be anywhere near dramatic in, in terms of yeah. what we've seen previously, and we should be able to just live with it. But I doubt that's going to be the narrative. Yeah, I'd agree. And at the risk of being nasty here, there's a lot of people engaged, shall we say, with this whole thing who will be crossing their fingers for a big impact in the winter. And I know that's a terrible reflection on human nature, but sadly, that's just the that's just the reality, you know, so oh, And I would say not not just those who have skin in the game, whether it be um, ideology, worldview, just don't want to be proved wrong or monetarily or industrially, what have you. I think there's a lot of people that want the drama to continue. Yeah. Sadly, there there is this kind of sadistic kind of nature in society at the moment that people that are getting, you know, they're licking their wounds because people like you and I are kind of like, you know, bit of, bit of a big chest right now saying, "Oh, look, you know, this this has kind of worked out the way we anticipated." 
they're waiting. I sense there's a there's a, there's a there's a there's a waiting for something to happen so they can say, Steve, either you were wrong. Look at it. Yeah. And that takes some enjoyment out of that, which is which is perverse, really. But anyway, yeah. we well, are gonna close. We are <laughs> no, sorry, closed, go on, you finish yeah, it. I agree. There's there's people, there's a sickness in human society now that wasn't really there 30 years ago. And that what you described there is part of it. People have been dumbed down now to junk television, watching other people's lives on television, you know, all that stuff. And looking at newspapers increasingly coming out with complete ridiculous trash. And we have a society now that I think that element you talked about that might have been there 30 years ago a little, it's now come to the fore. Um, It's terrible. And I'll just, I'll finish with one thought experiment that just occurred to me, the way you were talking there. If we went back to January 2020 and the only thing we changed was that this was an influenza strain, let's call it H4N8. And the impacts were exactly as per Corona, nothing different, but we magically just said, okay, it's H4N8. I don't think this could have happened. Because I think the public perception and throughout governments and everywhere, they'd still deep down be perceiving it as a bad flu. And I don't think this could have happened. It had to be a new, novel-sounding, scary thing. Because Maybe. if it was an influenza, there'd be too much instinctive feeling that, well, yeah, it's a bad flu. Too many academics would have started comparing it to the flu of 2018 and 2000, which was bigger impact than 2020. People don't know that. Too many comparisons to 67 and 58. The magic of how this happened was that it was not an influenza. It was a coronavirus. And if people just think about that, you might, you might need to think about it for a moment, but I think that's true. It would not have happened as it did, except it was a new and scary sounding virus that seemed like bubonic plague. Um, so there you go. Yeah, uh, no, I, I hear you. I hear you. I do. I do think though the pandemic um, Netflix documentary. I don't know if you've seen it. I put myself through ah. it just recently. But if you watch that, that was all about the flu, the next flu. It was all about the next flu. So um, I don't know. I don't know if anyone would have watched that, whether it be in them in amongst this mess or beforehand. They may have been primed for you know. There's going to be a there's going to be a nasty strain of flu, which isn't the flu. It's like serious flu, like super flu, and we're all going to come unstuck. I think we've seen exactly that pre- prediction. It's just called something else. And as you I, rightly say, maybe the name has got some credence I, and kind of put some weight to it. I think there's genius in the name uh, and the word novel. That caught my attention even back in March when I'd seen the uh, Chinese data and I knew what Levitt knew, that this was going to hurt but it wasn't going to be hugely different than prior bad flu seasons. But it really caught my instinct, novel. And I just felt at the time, the wording around this is loaded. There's something beyond straightforwardness. Um, And so there you go. So (laughs) a final thing I'd just say is really anyone listening to this, curious about it, should read the Spiegel article that you're going to link. It's very important to read. And uh, the movie, there's a brand new movie out. I don't do conspiracy, but as part of my research, I monitor everything that's going on. And I did watch it the other night. I think it's free uh, on London Reel or something, some platform. 
Was this the pandemic indoctrination? I I think it's a brand new release. It could be number two. I never watched yeah, the others. I watched it. Ah, so it's the latest one. It's free. It'll be banned everywhere, of course. I don't agree with the conspiratorial tone, but I think they have some fascinating material, a bit like the Spiegel article I mentioned. They have a lot of mainstream published material that's very interesting. So I kind of watched it and I glossed over some of the real conspiratorial stuff. I find that easy to do. Uh, But a large percentage of it had very interesting actual on-the-record documents, publications. So I think for that reason alone, it's it's really interesting. I agree. And I would add one last to that. I would um, I mentioned this to you on Twitter, but there's a guy by the name of James Corbett. Um, ah. I haven't done too much background on him, uh, albeit I have watched a couple of his things recently. And he feels like a genuine investigative journalist with good production skills. And he put together a four-part um, two-hour-long series on Bill Gates, but really, it's this. It's about that. This. It's about this scenario that we're talking about. And again, take away the smear campaign because there absolutely is one. And you just look at the the documented proof that he he offers, which you can go. You know, it gives full transcriptions and links to everything. You look at that and you go, aha, I see the unity, I see the cohesion, I see some of the narrative playing out in our world today. So I I would highly encourage people to look at that, but take it with a pinch of salt that, hey, Bill Gates is villain number one for everyone right now. And uh, I don't know if that's completely true or not. Last last thing as we close on this now is leave us with some hope. <laughs> you know, if you know, we're we're saying this train is unstoppable and you know, we're we're all just here to kind of see how you know this this train wreck happens but how can you what hope can you leave people with what can people do what can people do or do they just have to sit by and watch it unfold yeah around a month or six weeks ago i hit my my nadir my lowest ebb when they brought in mandatory masks and all and i just thought okay science is dead now and it's been buried in a lead coffin to ensure it can never be brought back to life so i was in a bad place I'm more hopeful now. I think we've got, uh, to be quite frank, brilliant uh, scientists around the world, increasingly getting some articles in mainstream media. Uh, Professor Stadler, we've got um, Dr. John Lee in the UK, who's fantastic, who's been writing with with science and sense since since April. Uh, We've got uh, Professor Carl Hennigan, who's a world authority in epidemiology and transmission, and he's the head of the Center of Evidence-Based Medicine in Oxford. So Professor Carl Hennigan, find his material. He's brilliant. Uh, We've got Professor, I think, Sanjay Gupta, who again is a world leader in epidemiology, who's been calling this correctly since since March, again out of Oxford. Uh, Professor, uh, I think is it Carl Sakora in the UK, talking sense. He has PhDs in um, immunology and, and oncology. So I think I'm depending on all of these. I'm Professor Michael Levitt uh, from Stanford, Nobel laureate. And I could go on. These people who have the courage to insist on calling calling it back to the science and logic, I think there's more and more of them. And I released a video yesterday that actually has hit 80,000 views overnight. And it's six minutes long, and everyone should watch it. Not for me. I don't get anything out of it. 
but it's a German doctor in a six-minute television interview mainstream, and the media are trying to say there's a crisis, like a case-demic, and he calls them, and he said, I'm sitting here at the front line. And oh, is we this have, the Spanish one? It's the Spanish about. one. Yeah, 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 that was incredible. Incredible. Utterly, utterly you know, jaw-dropping watching that. Jaw-dropping, and it's subtitled, but, but you know, you can, you can follow the subtitles. And I won't go on anymore because I know we're finished, but... I'm depending on people of courage, people of science all around the world and doctors and specialists who know roughly what we've said here. They know it's badly wrong. People need to look in a mirror and find the courage to speak up. And as I said, and it was harsh the other day, if not for yourself, on behalf of your children, the next generation, because we're entering into now with frightening speed into a world which apparently brings us a lot closer to the cattle in Farmer Brown's field than we've ever been in history. No mm. conspiracy, but COVID pass, tracking, you know, mass medications that don't make a cost benefit sense. They don't make a mathematical sense. Forget conspiracy. They don't make any scientific sense. We don't want to go down this road because it's going to be very hard to get back out of it. I mean, and you think really you think hard. the people being educated by listening to the resources you've said, listening yeah. to this, listening to you, by getting educated, having the courage to speak out, maybe share stuff that they wouldn't have shared previously. Do you do you see that as being a as a positive? Do you see it actually creating any change? I think it might. We we have a group in Ireland alone as a micro example. Our government has gone crazy, but in defense of them, they're politicians, and they've gone crazy based on a cabal of academics who are talking incredible nonsense, and they are the expert group advising them. So we do have a group in Ireland now. We've written letters to the ministers, and we have a growing group of medical professionals, top tier, and we're coming together. We have a 10-page uh, kind of manifesto going through the science and the data, and we're going to start hitting the business leaders big organizations who have suffered, politicians, and many other kind of uh, areas of society, and giving this 10-page summary that kind of actually explains to a non-scientist the enormity of what's going on. So I think if that could happen in every country, scientists, doctors, professionals in, in business, and you know scientists of all types, not just virology, need to start coming together, joining up and countering what's clearly a devastatingly bad direction that the world is taking in just a few months. I mean, that's beyond question now. What's happening is crazy. Even if there is a second hump and even if it comes in early winter, that doesn't matter. What matters is we've gone outrageously overboard, infringing on freedoms, bringing in draconian measures, bringing in new systems of surveillance that are utterly out of step with the actual impact of, of, of this problem virus. So I just say well said, man. people may, may start stepping up now as they, it dawns on them the serious implications of, of what's being allowed to happen at the moment. I, I think I have faith in people to stand up and have courage uh, an old-fashioned thing that's lacking in the last 20 years, maybe, 
I mean, can you imagine the post-World War II people? Do you think they'd have fallen for this? No chance. Not a hope. And I, think- I, I, I hear you. I hear you. But you, you, you'll get the, the alternative narrative, which is people saying, guys, just put on your fucking mask. Stop, stop giving it like as if it's a big ordeal. Like, you know, people in, you know, World War II, et cetera, the things that they fought for, the things that they've done, and you're bitching and moaning because we're asking you to put on a mask on. There is, you know, that can be weaponized for both directions. It can be described the way you are, which is, hey, we've, we've got more balls than this. We can do more than this. You know, we, we have more courage. And it can turn be turned back on you and saying, hang on a minute, you're fighting against uh, things that are small asks that make a big difference to humanity. So again, I think it's going to continue to be politicized. I think there's going to be mm. more tribalism. There's going to be more black and white kind of nature to this. Obviously, we've got the Trump thing going on, you know, in November, and I anticipate a flurry of kind of anger and hate going back and forward um, in this kind of tribal effort, you know, to even get him mm. out. I, I anticipate that's going to definitely bleed over into the UK. So I think we just got to weather the storm as uh, in terms of the kind of propaganda that we're going to f- see. But I agree with you. If people just could have the courage to stop, not just kind of going, yeah, I get it, but actually say something. Because kind of getting it and rolling your eyes and or complying, but you knowing it's all bullshit, that's kind of part of the problem. Because you're endorsing the problem by not speaking out, I- by not rebelling and or not just, quite frankly, sharing what you've learned with someone else. And I think if all of us could just do that and say, do you know what, if I kind of get it, it's prudent upon me to do the thinking, do the assessment. And if I agree with what's being said, I need to start sharing it. Exactly. And I would say to everyone out there, you know, I've spent decades in fairly high stakes crisis management. What's happening is abhorrent to me uh, because I have all the science as well and all the technical. So unfortunately, I, I can see how bad it is. Uh, But I understand fear got the best of you. Fair enough. But it's time to find some courage now and stand up and have the arguments. Uh, You know, just find some courage to stand up and question. You don't have to lecture people. You have to question people. Question the data. Question the logic. I mean, when you know that shop workers and grocery workers right through the height of the epidemic were not locked down, eight hours a day, they were exposed to all the great unwashed, eight hours a day, indoors, no masks, and there isn't a single sliver of a signal of higher infection or mortality, right? Ask the questions. Um, I just say, wake up, guys, or I'll tell you something, by the time you wake up, (laughs) you'll be in Farmer Brown's field. (laughs) (laughs) Lovely, Ivor. Listen, it's been fantastic. Uh, A long one, but a necessary discussion. We didn't waste a second. I think all of it is stuff that people are going to enjoy. Um, we, I'm going to point people to your YouTube channel and to your podcast, um, Fat Emperor. Is there any other resources you want to make sure that people kind of go and take a look at other than the things that you said I'll link to as well? Yeah, I'd say probably at the moment, my YouTube channel, um, all the videos, interviews with top people. And in each prod- or in each video description now, there's my Patreon and PayPal link because I've moved on from the charity I work for. And to keep in this kind of mode of getting the science to the people, I obviously have five kids, so I do need some some income. I don't want to go back to corporate program management. Um, so yeah, that that's there too. If you like the material, you know, a little bit of support goes a long way. Fantastic. Keep up the great work. You are you are fighting for our freedoms. You are fighting for truth. 
and you're enlightening us all. Uh, I thoroughly enjoy you on Twitter, so I'll make sure that is linked to as well. But just keep doing what you're doing. Um, keep sane. Hopefully keep healthy and happy because it is it is testing right now, especially when you're this close to the data and this close to the insanity constantly. But thank you for all you're doing, Ivor. And um, hopefully in a few months' time, we'll get back together and just go, hey, you know, we we were waxing about Armageddon that never happened and things have gone back to normal. Oh, Fingers hope, crossed. Hopefully. And thank you, Steve. And yeah, no, I'm fighting Irish, especially in technical stuff. I hate when the technical truth is twisted. And I can actually weather this madness very, very well. Uh, <laughs> I never go down on this stuff, not till the last moment. So don't worry about that. Good man. Good <laughs> man. All righty, fella. Take Cheers. Care. Whoa, just before you go, I want to know two things from you, if you would be so kind. Firstly, how did you find that episode? Was it insightful? Was it practical? Has it got you thinking about things differently? If so, do us a huge favor, please, and write us up a quick review in your podcast app, whether it be on Apple or Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform. And secondly, have you checked out the Be Your Best journey yet? If you haven't, that's cool, but go to adaptnation.io or click the link within the show notes and just take a look around. See how we put together the messaging as to the value of this online course and program. And if you've got any thoughts, I'd love to hear them. And if you're interested about it, then hey, there's no time like the present. Get involved. It's 100 days of personal growth and self-development. I am sure you're going to get a lot of value from it. Anyway, until next time, I'll let you crack on and be your best. If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might enjoy the show. Feel free to get in touch with us via our website, adaptnation.io, or your favorite social media channel. This has been Adapt Nation. Till next time, thanks for listening.